Hello, my name is Benjamin Hampton, and you are listening to the Seattle Film Institute podcast. About halfway through our first season, we circled back to Seattle Film Institute and interviewed two integral parts to the Seattle Film Institute faculty. We talked with Dan McComb and Sam King. Part one, we talked with Dan McComb, and part two, we talked with Sam King. And um, so now I'm, I'm excited to circle back. Um, I heard about you, um, it must have been right after I came to school here, and the students were, they just raved about you. Um, Joseph Spar, uh, who I've hired, my business has used uh, uh, several times in the last few years, um, had an editing class with you, and then I assume uh, some kind of production class. But um, the other students that I talked to said, you know, Dan is meticulous. He's a perfectionist. Um, the style of editing that he teaches. Uh, I mean, these, these guys are now teaching me <laughs> from how you taught them editing techniques. Um, and they're, they're really good. So that had to be from good instruction there. But then my, my interest with you also, I got to work with you a little bit this summer, see how you did in your production class. And really interesting time how you were kind of modeling the techniques used in Nomadland inspired, um, you know, so kind of how you're teaching the students to about location scouting and the importance of using, you know, your natural environment, what's around you to, to sort of be your backdrop and do you a lot of favors there. So that's that style of budgeting and that, you know, level of, of filmmaking is kind of what I'm showing them and, the, you know, by these examples we're using in the class. So uh, it was a pleasure to work with you. I, I, I told them uh, Dan is my favorite uh, local Seattle professional non-narrative. <laughs> I mean, just, yeah, I, I thought you were really quite brilliant at how you um, translate to camera, you know, all the complex aspects of lighting and uh, time and aperture and everything. Uh, so it was it was really a treat there. So... Uh, if you if you would, sir, if you could introduce yourself, uh, what you cover here at the Film Institute, and uh, and then we'll kind of profile you and, and work backwards and look at your interests and how you got into filmmaking. But but for starters, just give us an overview. Sure. Of, of yeah. Well, thank you. It was super fun working with you this summer as well, and I really love that opportunity to go out of the studio, out of the classroom, take the students outside and. And, and shoot something that, and, and something that wasn't just like, okay, let's kind of shoot some imaginary thing. Let's actually shoot something that's, you know, that we can actually cut something out of it and have a little, have something to show for it, you know, have, have something that feels like it has a, a, com a complete beginning, middle, and end. So, uh, yeah, but my, my background actually is, uh, I, w I was trained as a journalist. So my background is, is, a, is in print journalism um, and uh, I was very interested in still photography at that time. The school I went to, University of Montana, didn't, didn't have a photojournalism program. Um, they do now, actually, but I was one of the, one of the I guess, last students, or one of the first students who kind of helped um, make a photojournalism program happen there at that university, and, and I was lucky to have a really good um, professor who was, who was a photojournalist herself, and later she became the a photo editor of the Oregonian, um, and so I, I, I just 
really, you know, learned how to how to tell a story with one frame, you know, which is, I think, what still photography is all about. Certainly from a journalistic perspective, you're trying to, you know, render an event uh, or, or some news, some item of news, you know, for example, um, you know, let's just take, take, take a big news story that we all um, have thought about recently with the big anniversary of 9-11, right? Um, it's it's such a gigantic story, and it's and, and there's so many pieces, and you know, so so much has been you know since then written about it. But on the day when you're there, if you're a photojournalist, you're trying to to take one image that can speak to that event, you know, and and communicate everything in that one frame. And so, you know, that that's a really I think that's a really great discipline and a great education for for storytelling to to, to learn that. But when I Years later, when I um, shifted what I was doing and, and got more interested in motion picture, which for me, by the way, probably like a lot of people from my generation, ha happened when the Canon 5D Mark II happened. Because the 5D Mark II was like such an extraordinary camera, and it, and it was a bridge for people like me who, who knew all about using that camera as a still camera, but, we're, but our jaws just hit the floor when we saw that, oh, my God, look at the video that this thing can do, right? Because we hadn't seen video cameras that were capable of that, certainly in that budget range, and even, even at any price range, really. There, there was no such thing as a full-frame video camera um, that, that could do that. And all of a sudden, we could do it with the camera that we already owned, you know? So that, that for me, was the, the light bulb moment where I was like, hey, I, I should look into this motion picture thing and just and, and play around with it. So I literally... I, I was working um, on a, a company that I had co-founded in, in Seattle, and we wanted to have an event um, where we were going to interview a bunch of people who were entrepreneurs. I, hire, I didn't know how to make a film. I, I hired a filmmaker, um, a guy named Ben Medina, who's actually um, gone on to actually make his first sort of Hollywood uh, uh, film with a budget uh, called Echo, um, and he's back and forth between Hollywood and here in Seattle now. But at the time, he was just a kid with a, um, you know, with big dreams of, of uh, doing what a lot of our, a lot of students here want to do, which is make films for a living. And I hired him. And, and he kind of was my first teacher, really. Um, uh, he kind of, I learned a lot about filmmaking from him. Um, and, you know, by the end of that project, I was hooked. Um, so I, so I quit my uh, mother. My, my, my wife and I had co-founded this company. She basically wanted me gone anyway. She said, get, let me, get out of my way. Let me run the company the way it should be run. So, uh, so I took the opportunity and, and, um, and just had, I've been making films ever since uh, that time. And fortunate to grow a, 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 what I think of as a really uh, meaningful and, and um, a positive and, and financially rewarding um, career as a, documentary filmmaker for medical organizations in Seattle. UW Medicine is my largest client. And I, and I love um, working in that space because, you know, as filmmakers, we love to tell stories where something is at stake. And when you're telling those kinds of stories, there's always usually a matter of life and death, you know, for someone. And, and so those are, those are, um, those are powerful stories and, and I, I, it's been a privilege and I, I really love to tell them. And now, now that I've been, Teaching, I love to to share what I've learned about about that with the students here at SFI. It's really really good professional work. Um, I love your Vimeo page, and 
you really take pride in, um, especially the medical stuff that you have of making sure that story is told in it. And it's interesting. And I, and I found myself, you know, scrolling through a lot of your stuff and what, what I don't think normally I would go to search through, but it was, you, you made it so interesting um, in a, in a structure and, and style that I think is, is kind of definitely yours. Is there something you produce that you're the most proud of that you, you were, you know, kind of happy to say, Hey, this is something that I personally love and, stand behind that I produced. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I knew when COVID happened that I, I was sooner or later going to get an opportunity to do a COVID project um, because it, it made such an impact um, on my client, on, on UW Medicine. Um, you know, they their lives changed forever um, on in certainly, you know, hospital-wide, uh, throughout their whole, the, the, the several hospitals they run in the Seattle area and beyond. Um, and so... When it happened, I I sent emails around to everybody who I knew, at, um, you know, in the organization, and basically just told them, please don't um, let this this pandemic go by. And, and at the time, you know, we all thought it was it would be over probably sooner than it than it has drug on. It, it, it seemed at the time like this is going to be bad, but it's going to be we'll get you know we'll get through it in, in you know maybe a few months or something. And and so I. You know, I, I, I really, to me, it was very important to have an opportunity to film in the in the, in the places where this was actually affecting people. Like, and for me, that would be in the, you know, in the hospitals where people are sick and they're being treated. Um, but I also knew that, you know, because they're crazy busy and that, you know, doing something which a lot of them would think of as a marketing thing, that would be on the, the last thing on their minds, right? So I really, I, I kept on begging people and, People literally, I didn't even get a reply. No one, none of my uh, client um, contacts even replied to my emails, which was, you know, I mean, they were they were busy, right? They were they were they were working on other things, and uh, so the opportunity for me came, um, uh, you know, a few months into it, it was in April of the of the uh, you know, so the winter had already happened. That was the first wave was happening during that first winter between it started like in January February. Um, around the beginning of April, uh, I got a, an email from the chief nursing officer at Harborview Medical Center who had seen a project I did for Harborview the previous fall. Um, and he, he, it was a fundraising thing, um, and it wasn't particularly interesting, as often fundraising videos aren't always interesting, but, but he liked it enough to call me. And he approached me in the way that Many students will find clients approach them, you know, as, as you're starting your career, you know, you're going to, your, your clients are going to come to you and they're going to ask for something. And, um, you know, I've learned to listen to what, to what they ask for, but also to listen, be, to imagine beyond that, because clients, clients really, even people who work in the film industry, you know, frankly, don't have that much imagination. And, and you have to really be prepared to show and not, and not tell, you know, and so, so for me, um, what, what he was interested in was um, making a video that would thank the nurses for Nurses Week, um, which is in uh, May every year, and so I, uh, so he, I, you know, I li as I was listening, he, he said, you know, I, you know, I'm the chief nursing officer, I, I like, I'd like you to come down and maybe interview me, because I'd like to make a personal thank you to all the nurses, and, uh, you know, I'll have a few things to say about, about COVID, and then maybe you could interview a nurse 
uh, as well. Um, so we could find, we'll, we'll find someone for you and come down here and do that. So, you know, that's the sort of, you know, clients always come to you with something like that, right? They have an idea and they, and they, and they're, and they're, you know, they, they imagine that, that that's what it, it could be. But really, it's, it's your job, you know, as a filmmaker, it's your job to imagine, like, what could this project be? And so for me, um, you know, as a storyteller, I knew that, you know, stories are the thing, right? Like, we, we always, you know, every student here at SFI gets that drilled into their head. Stories are the thing that connects with the general audience, always. You know, it, you can interview someone who is an expert on nursing, talking about inside pool nursing, and that'll be interesting to nurses. But it wouldn't be interesting beyond that. Um, so you know, I felt like we had an opportunity here to do something bigger. And one of the, one of the techniques that I've been really fortunate to evolve uh, working at with, with uh, one particular client at UW Medicine, um, which is the UW Medicine Advancement Division, um, they're tasked with raising money for, for UW, uh, for UW Medicine in particular. Um, and over the years, I, I've, I've just observed that, um, you know, there's really two poles, um, in motion picture, you know, it, it, it's television and movies, right? If you turn on a TV, what are you likely to see? What's the first thing? Turn on CNN, what do you see? Talking, talking heads. Exactly. Talk, Square. Talking heads, Panel. right? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And if you turn on Netflix, what's the first thing you see? Action, yeah, action. right? You see action. And and those are the, those are the polls, right? It's uh, talking heads and action. Mm. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, me, my allegiance is to action. You know, like I, I much rather would be, it is a documentary storyteller. You know, I, I'm on the side of filmmakers like uh, Jimmy Chan, you know, who made Free Solo. You know, Free Solo does have some interviews in it, very, but if you actually, uh, you know, made a record of all the amount of talking head in that film, it's very, very, very small. And, and there's just a lot of action that's, that, that you are there observing it and making your own opinions about about what's going on. Um, by the way, he's got a new film called The Rescue right now, which I'm dying to see. It's in theaters right now, huh. uh, and it it's I'm sure it's going to be incredible. Uh, it's about uh, the, the kids who were trapped in that in Thailand in that cave, uh, and how right. they were rescued. Right. So, and if it's any if it's anywhere near as good as Free Solo, it's going to be amazing. Um, so so for me, uh, you know, I, I'm always trying to find a way to do that, you know, is, is, is to do that. And so it occurred, it, it, it occurred to me over the years as I was working on, on many of those projects that recording interviews is, we, we spend so much time doing it, you know, and, 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 and we, we spend a lot of budget doing it as well. Anytime you have to shoot an interview, there is a tremendous load attached to that. There's, there's um, you know, you need crew a certain amount of crew you need you need like uh, someone an assistant to, to bring all the lights in uh you need you need someone to r run the camera so that the person who's doing the interviewing doesn't have to do the camera at the same time because it's very difficult or impossible to do a good job um, with all that at the same time and and so it starts to really become expensive for one thing also there's another thing and that is people who are not professionals who are sitting down and I meant by professionals i mean actors um if they're sitting down in front of a camera and there's lights on them and there's, there and you know, everything is, is all set up and they're, and they're asked to have a normal conversation, some part of their brain is thinking, how do I look right now? You know, yeah, and and it, it can be anxiety-producing for a lot of people. And so, um, 
you know, it occurred to me that if, if you know, if you use the exam- example of Jimmy Chan's film, Free Solo, and that whole film happened, and he shot interviews, but how much, how much actual interview time was in the film? Hardly any, mm-hmm. right? So if you're doing your job, all that stuff that you spend, that, that documentary filmmakers spend a ton of time doing, doesn't go in the film. Very, almost never, hardly any of it goes in the film. So, so I thought, what, what would happen if I asked my client to, to, to bear with me and, and, and see what happens if we just don't shoot interviews and we spend all of our energy moving to the other pole, which is the, the action side. And, and could, could, we, could, could something as, 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 as sort of um, documentary formulaic as, as medical film, um, documentary filmmaking, uh, medical commercial filmmaking, could that be brought to life in a better way around that? So I did, I, th- I was able to convince my client, luckily they trusted me after the years we worked together, and I, I found a project where, where they were willing to, to go with me there, and I, and I just, it was, it was like magic. It, everything just started working uh, when, I, when I did that. Um, first of all, it, it's cheap. You know, you can sit down with someone the way you and I are sitting down together right now. Um, I could do it myself, because um, it's possible to, to, to just, you know, bring a recorder set the mic up, hit record, and make sure it's working, and then, and then focus on the conversation. Although, I, you know, I do like having a sound recorders with me. It's it, always a good idea uh, right. to do that. But you don't need an assistant to do lighting. You don't need another person to run the camera. And the person you're talking to isn't thinking, how do I look? Right. So I, so I found that I was just able to get to better stuff, more emotional stuff, mm-hmm. more real stuff, quicker. Um, and and, that, and that, that the result was stronger emotionally and um so the other thing uh, that that uh, that happened was um not everyone is not every story not every subject you know is great um so but if you've brought cameras and lights and budgeted and all that and done that if that person turns out to not be able to pull it off very well um it's too late the ship has already sailed (laughs) and you're stuck with garbage in garbage out (laughs) right so, but when you just have a, when, you, when you've just done a, a, a talking interview with someone, it's so much easier for the client to say, to, to basically agree with you when they hear it and say, oh yeah, this, we should keep looking. So it becomes a kind of casting, right? That first interview becomes casting as opposed to the torpedoes are in the water. You right. Know? Um, so, um, so basically, um, so that allowed me then to start, instead of just going with one person who the client had decided was going to be someone I should interview it allowed me to basically interview uh, what I what I started doing is interviewing three people if I was going to do a story about one person I would always um, pre-interview three people and because if you interview three people one of them will be the best mm-hmm. right and it's same it's sort of like if you have a narrative you're doing a narrative, a narrative production and you um, you wouldn't really likely just be like Oh, this person's uh, someone I'm gonna cast, so I'm done. My job is done. You would do casting, right? That's why we. Right? That's why we do casting. We do casting because there's someone out there you you haven't met uh, who could be perfect for this role, and you won't find them unless you do casting, right? Right. And and so, um, so that's what I started doing um, with, with with my clients, and um, and then I noticed another really bang on. Um, benefit and that was uh often when you're doing documentary uh work clients will find someone who maybe they have a great story but their but their but their current life 
the, the things that they're doing in their life now are completely boring. Like, <laughs> for example, you know, this person is a office uh, assistant or, you know, this, this person um, is a computer programmer. And so what do they do? They sit behind their laptop all day long and write code. So what else do they do? Play video games or, you know, whatever. It's like nothing, basically, right? So you, not, not that programmers are, are, are boring people. Some of them are very interesting, but... But I, but but for me, it became the thing. Like the the, the thing was, if I'm going to be able to make this work, this approach, the person has to have two things in their life: action that I can film now today, and th- that action has to happen in a location. Like so, so actions in locations, right? That that become that becomes sort of a really big thing in the process of of, of finding someone right from the beginning, because you can't rely on a role because you don't have it <laughs> right so you sold them on i'm going to slim down i want to have more action and less interview than that traditional structure and then that's yeah so so but i th- can draw better stuff out of them to feel more natural and yeah that that was the thing but then it turned out that it, there was even there's even another benefit another really big big benefit and that is all of you uh, who've ever cut something for a client have probably experienced this moment where we where we have where we we we've done we've we have the concept we we interview the person we go and we shoot the b-roll and then our first deliverable to the client is the rough cut right so we we put a lot of effort into it we get music we do we even do a little color grade ahead of time because we want it to look good and we, we show it to the client and the first reaction is Oh, <laughs> you know, like, like, oh yeah, and and like, well, okay, and and the reason I think that always happens is because a rough cut is a lot. It's a lot to take in, right? There's music, there's there's dialogue, there's sound effects, there's there's you know, action, there's interviews, there's all the, all this stuff, right? And it's overwhelming to clients, especially clients like mine who have to hash these things out in a in a around a conference room with like six different stakeholders right they have to they have to find agreement right so uh, every time a, a rough cut lands it's just it, it's like a truck with six wheels each pointed in a different direction right it often comes back with changes that aren't going to make it better and you know that those changes aren't going to make it better but it's kind of the language a client has to work with you on you 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 show them something, and then they they they, they only are going to comment on what, what you show them, right? So what I did was, I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this audio-driven approach, my first deliverable to the client isn't going to be a rough cut; it's going to be a radio edit. Mm. So so it, my my inspiration for that is This American Life, basically, right? Like, th- I love This American Life. I love Ira Glass. Yeah. He's such an ins- inspir- inspiring figure. Um, some of the things he said about you know perseverance at the beginning of your career uh, have have inspired me, and and I I repeat th- those things to in in my classes to my students today. Um, uh, you can Google you can Google it for uh, you know the inspiring. He he uh, gave a commencement address I think a few years back, and um, you can Google it where he talks about uh, the thing the thing that you have to do uh, to to get good, which is to basically fail a lot over and over again and keep going. You know you just you, he goes. I wish somebody would have told me um, huh. what it's like, but you know, I. He says I. I probably failed more than most, but I kept trying, and eventually you get it right. So, Sound. 
so I, so I, you know, I just love the format on, on this American Life. Um, I mean, it's like a podcast, basically, right? But it's for yeah. radio, um, and and you, you know, and and it's got music, and it's got pacing, and it's got emotional um, beats. Um, so, so what I do, so if I if I interview someone, um, I, I I make a transcript, and then I sit down with that with a, with a with a pad, with, with I print it out on both sides of a, in a physical printer, and then I get a, a yellow highlighter, and I get a cup of coffee, and I the first thing I do is I I just go over that that transcript and I highlight anything that I think could be good, um, and if if it's really good, I'll put a star behind it and if uh, i would have lived in vain if it doesn't make it in the film i'll put like two stars beside it you know and and then uh and then and then i um sit down and i, I import all those uh, sound bites into my nle and i put it in a i throw them on a timeline and that's my string out and then i um sleep on it usually and the next day wake up with fresh eyes and and I start cutting away, you know, at that. I, I start taking the stuff out that shouldn't be there, right? And then reordering things to, to make it work as a story. And then at some point as I'm doing that, um, I'll start, I'll, I'll realize, I'll start to feel something. I'll start to feel an emotion. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll start to wonder if I, if I'll start to imagine some music that might work to, that, to accentuate that, that part of the story. And then I'll, I'll go and I'll start looking for music. Um, and, I, and I have, you know, I subscribe to several different online music libraries. And so I can usually find something um, that works and start cutting it together. And I cut the music up too. Like I'll, I'll, I'll cut it to, like if I, have, if, I, if I have 30 seconds where I need, you know, a, 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 just like this, if you think about this American life, they do it all the time, right? If there's some part where there's a, a plot development, there'll be some sort of pensive music that's got some tension and then it'll resolve, right? And they'll be on to the next uh, story right. beat. Yeah. So I do the same thing, right? I do the same thing in my in my radio edit, and then um, and I get the whole thing together with complete with pacing, music, and and I that that's my first deliverable to my client. No video. Um, so at this point, I haven't shot any video. Usually, I haven't shot a single frame of video. I've just got the story, right? And so then I uh, I I send that to my client. They sit down in a room with however many people are, are reviewing this step of the process and they close their eyes and they listen to the thing that we all want our, our clients to listen to, which is the story, right? right? Yep. And they can't think about anything else because you're not showing them That's anything really else. That's brilliant, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, man, magic. It's just like magic. Uh, the client, it doesn't, it, it's not a truck with six wheels anymore. It's just a truck that is pointed in the right direction, you know, with, and, wow. And the clients are, are 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 on board. They get on board very quickly, and they might have a few uh, edits here and there. But for the most part, it's just it, it just it just it's amazing. It just gets it unifies um, instead of causing division on those teams, right. it unifies the team. Um, and they and, and and even if they're still not sure, it's like you've showed them something so that later when you show them the rough cut, it's like an old friend. Like right. they're they're already they, they're already predisposed to say yes to it because they've already approved it one, one time. So right. it just makes everything run smoother in those kinds of uh, client um, interactions. And and now we have a script, basically, right? Because yeah. once that's approved, now we know exactly what to shoot because we've, we've got 
the beats. We've got the, we know what's there. Even if we can't, even if, if it's a story that someone's telling about, uh, you know, they had a heart transplant. Well, I'm not going to get any B-roll of that heart transplant now, but um, I had a, a project about a guy who did a, who needed a heart transplant and he was going to die if he didn't get one. And it turned out his um, passion in life was boating. Like he, he had, as a kid, he started with a small boat and he got older, as he got older and had you know, better paying jobs, he kept on trading up and trading up until today he's, he's retirement age and he has a 40-foot uh, yacht and um, he just loves uh, going out on this yacht. So, you know, it occurred to me that we could, uh, that, that the whole story about his heart uh, failure and transplant could be told with B-roll from one trip on his boat, like taking the boat out, all, how much work it is to get a 40, him and his wife take this 40-foot boat out by themselves. So it's quite, a, it's quite a project. Normally boats that big would have some crew, uh, but they'll, they know how to do it themselves. And so I thought, well, this, uh, you know, there's action, right? That's the, and, and there's action, and it's in a great location, right? It's on the water in Puget Sound. And wow. They live out um, by, um, uh, it, it's, it, you go uh, across the Vashon Ferry and keep going to whatever that next one is there. I can't remember the, the uh, south of Bremerton, right across from Bremerton. Right. They, they live there, and it's a beautiful place. Um, and um, so I met them, and um, uh, after, I, after I cut the, the radio edit and sold it to the client, uh, then I, I, I went and spent a day with them uh, taking the boat out, and, um, and I was able to basically turn the moments in their uh, significant amount of effort that they go to to get this boat out safely and on the water and slow at first and eventually at, at, uh, at speed, um, and it, it became basically a metaphor for his own journey uh, through the challenges of, of discovering that you could die from something that your, your heart is failing and you will die unless you get a new heart. Um, and, and, it, and it worked. And it worked to the, it worked um, in this case, um, my client was launching a $2 billion capital campaign for UW Medicine. And um, in order to be invited to this fundraiser, you had to have given at least a million dollars previously and they had 250 people at this event on Mercer wow. Island. And so the, the story had to be good. You know, the story has to be, the story, these are high stakes for this client. They need yeah. a, a, a story that will help, help those people. Instead of, you know, instead of giving a million dollars, maybe they'll give two, you know, and that, and that can make a, a massive impact on the lives of, of people uh, like the subject of the story. Interesting. And how long into your career did you, because that, that is such a valuable gem of advice for the deliverables and expectations of a client. You must have had a, a ton of trial and error to get that. I mean, what a valuable gem of doing the radio edit, presenting that instead of, like you said, so many distractions with the visuals and the colors and the music and, the, and again, what they want the story to be told. So how long or at what point in your career did you, figure that <laughs> I, I think I've, I've been you know I, I've been doing that technique uh, and it's become kind of my thing it's, it's become the, th the reason that people hire me now because it's sort of my, my my approach you know my style I guess you'd say Werner Herzog famously says that style is nothing more than how you solve the problems of production that's that's great and and I, and I think it's true right like we all come up with ways of solving these problems that we encounter while we're making films uh, and this is this is just you know, a way for me to get through that 
those you know dizzying list of problems uh, that we that we have you know while we're you know we're doing our work. Yeah, I think that's something that's underestimated in the you know doing what you do, working with clients, and having to show deliverables. And I, I think maybe what might get underestimated is the back and forth, like in a in a regular situation. How is that difficult? Having to kind of say, okay, I presented this. This is a ton of work that I put into my vision, and you're basically going, oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I think that the the trick that I've realized is you really need to 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 bring your clients with you you know you, you want you, you don't if you just accept what they come to you with you're 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 not going to be delivering something that they're going to be ha- as happy with it you know it's like car companies uh, car companies always say that um if you if you if you if you ask people what they want they'll tell you that they want something really boring you know but so so don't so so they've learned that they, they've learned that you can't really make a car based on consumer feedback you, you can't it won't it won't sell right you have to you have to be a step ahead you, you have to be thinking what is someone going to want right and you know steve jobs obviously was famous for for doing that way and obviously in the car industry we have elon musk who's who's um you know upended the entire industry not by uh, asking people you know what better gas car do they want but mm-hmm. actually completely upending the the game right and and so I think uh, you know we're not upending the game completely uh, as filmmakers, but I think what we have to do is we have to we have to um, imagine what's possible, right? And then it's our job to to bring the client along with us along uh, along the way in a way that respects the client and the way that in- invites their feedback. All, all, and that's how you you bring them along, right? You you show them you know something appropriate that can get them to buy into it. And then you can seal the deal, um, you know. With, in my case, with the with the rough cut after the, the radio edit. In switching the narrative, how would that, or would that be a similar process as far as you deliver a first cut to, I don't know, executives or your producing team? Uh, would it be the expectations be a little bit different? Deliverables, you know, and maybe not quite a different. Yeah, so I mean, I wish I could talk about narrative. I but you're, you know, I don't really have that much narrative experience, honestly. You know, I'm I'm really a documentary filmmaker, uh, a documentary commercial filmmaker is is my focus. I, you know, I've worked on, I've worked on um, traditional documentary films. I contributed a lot of footage, for example, to um, the uh, the film Totally Out of Control about COVID that um, was um, that was made. Um, I, you know, I. I I've worked on narrative projects. I I I wish my, my hero is uh, as you know I mentioned Werner Herzog. I had a, a wonderful opportunity to study with him uh, briefly. I, I was I, I participated in his thing called Rogue Film School, which is where you send a short film to him, and if he likes it, he'll invite you to join him. Wow! For um for a, for a four day event, you know four day four days in a in a in some wherever he's at, and you can you can join him. as about thirty people, thirty of us that that did it. Uh, he does this occasionally, not not all the time, but he does it whenever he whenever he wants to, uh, and uh, you know, it, it really it was a wonderful opportunity for me to to learn about um, you know what what goes into that uh, that the, the both the narrative and documentary, and that's the part that's the thing I, I I admire more about Herzog than many other filmmakers is the fact that he goes so gracefully between documentary and narrative. Um, he's a wonderful narrative filmmaker, and he's an extraordinary documentary filmmaker. 
Um, and you know, that's that's the kind of people I I have as role models. You know, as, as people who can do do both. I wish I could. I, I wish I had more narrative experience, but I haven't had a ton of it myself. Um, every chance I get, by the way, <laughs> if anyone's listening to this and is thinking, uh, I, you know, I need I need someone to someone with documentary experience to work on my narrative. Uh, yes, uh, pick me, please, because I, I hardly say no to projects like that because I'm I'm hungry to do more of stuff like that. And I think I think that the, that the experience translates. I think if yeah. you look at really um, wonderful DPs who are who have, who work in the industry today, many of them got started in documentary. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it's applicable to students because you're gonna get hired doing a lot of private work you know, after film school or in the private market doing stuff for clients and individual people. Um, I mean, it depends on your experience. If you get experience, you know, going right into productions and then you're going to get more experience that way. But typically the people I've gone to school with at graduate level, that's what they parlayed into is, is more what you're talking about. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely relevant, the experience there. You answered a lot of the questions I was going to ask about your inspirations as far as documentary filmmakers and then narrative um, so I, I think you definitely hit hit both of those. Um, I wanted to transition that also just to say you have to take dance classes because um, they're so good. I'm learning secondhand from people that were in your classes in particular talking about editing. Um, so a lot of good techniques. I love documentary and, and that's really my strength and interest as well. And it's also a good way when you're starting out with limited resources and equipment and whatnot to actually make something pretty good as opposed to trying to get a bigger budget and production crew and et cetera. So the editing, you know, really stood out the techniques that uh, I, you know, got secondhand from you and hearing you talk in your production class. And then also on the production side, literally with the camera work, the color, the lighting, um, you're extremely proficient and it seems like you teach this really high professional level and you're telling your students like, don't settle for anything less because this is the level of stuff I'm making is what's out there and that's what's going to be expected of you. So I think it translates really well. But I want to talk just a little bit about um, what you used for your students as far as the Nomadland example. And I know you told them in your production classes you were inspired a lot by like Terrence Malick and, and you know, using the beautiful cinematography and, and beautiful lighting and skyscapes and everything that they did, but I used the one we did in, in this summer, which was Nomadland expired, you teaching your students, you know, kind of following or using that bar, uh, an example, but what you eventually cut and edited was so inspiring. I was sharing it with people and they were giving me this like personal anecdotal stories like that. It, that really touched me. I lost somebody recently this year in 2020 or 2021, or sorry, last year, 2020, or this year, 2021. And it really touched my heart, you know, to, to you know, the subject of that. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what, you know, kind of your your process there of, of how we um, created that. But then, um, yeah, 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 just in, no, in good. that. Uh, so I, I, when I watched Nomadland, I was really pretty blown away. Um, and so I was really interested in who the filmmakers were, and I hadn't I, I hadn't seen um, Rider or Songs. My brother taught me they're the first films that Chloe Zhao and Josh Richards made together. Uh, by the way, they they met each other in film school at NYU, so they um, they st were students together and um, met in school and working on their their projects together. And 
um, you know, and they face the same problems that um, a lot of students face, which is how are we going to make something worth watching with hardly any budget uh, and and a lot of challenges, you know, that, that go with, with, you know, getting an audience. So uh, they, you know, they, th- I just think they're so resourceful and so, um, so willing to not be, um, not, to not, to not, uh, to not stop what you're doing, you know, to keep going forward with their with, and bring their ideas to life. For example, their 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 film, their, their I think I believe it was their first film that they did their, together. They they had somehow scraped together some a little bit of budget, and but they found out when they were in the RE parking lot in New York, they were they were checking out uh, their rental camera, and um, they got a phone call that their their the, the main source of funding was canceled. So they were basically looking at canceling the production. And they looked at each other and just said, we, we got to find a way to do this anyway, you know? And, and so what that means is um, no lighting. We basically have nothing. Oh, uh, somehow the, the, the story I heard, I, I, I watched a podcast with Josh Richards, and the story I heard was that uh, the folks at Ari um, when when they found out that the fu- their funding was canceled, said, you know what, you can take this camera anyway. Like they they worked out a deal with them that was like you know too good to be true. They basically said, you know, we we'd like to start a relationship with you. And you know, I, I think that that's not totally uncommon. Like you, if you you know if you're a, a serious student and you want to do good work, you can go down to a Kerner Camera or you know some legit rental house and and strike up a conversation with the people there and make friends with them and let them know what you're doing and say I I'm just a I'm, a I'm a young filmmaker because those cameras are sitting on the shelf a lot you know they're not right. they're not being checked out every day and they want them they want those cameras out um, being used and they want they want you to they want your career to blossom because then you'll come back and rent gear <laughs> from them again right so anyway that's that's an aside but Ari basically said, "Here, we got this great camera. You can you can use it for your production." And um, I think they paid them something, but it wasn't it wasn't nearly what the normal rate was. Um, but then they couldn't get anything else, right? Like so, they had no they had they lost most of their crew. They lost you know all the stuff that, that costs money, right? Um, so so then they were like, "Well, how can we do this, right?" And and that was the thing that that, that struck me as being so creative about it. It was they took the Terrence Malick approach, right? Which is, um, if we don't have lighting, then then we have the opportunity to shoot when the light is good, right? When the light is naturally good. And that happens two times a day, just like clockwork, usually. Although in the Northwest, maybe you could argue that, <laughs> that we have gray, we have uh, slightly less gray and slightly more gray <laughs> for about nine months of the year. Um, but where they were shooting was in the plains of North Dakota uh, and, and uh, that film. And they uh, have a lot of sunlight, um, and so the sun in, in the in the early morning is is fantastic, right? It's it's almost like uh, cheating. It, it really is cheating, basically. You can you can almost do no wrong when you when you put people into that kind of a landscape where the light's happening like that. But it also means you got to plan, right? You got to plan a lot better because that light comes and goes very fast. Um, so. That's what they did. Uh, that's what they did on their first film. That's what they did on their second film, and that's what they did on their third film. And by the time they were working on their third film, uh, they they were starting to get the attention of um, uh, of some pretty impressive uh, people, including um, 
Fran, uh, the star of, of right. their show, Francis McDormand, uh, who came to them uh, with with this idea of uh, working on this project. Wow. And it was her story or her... It wasn't Fran's story. There was actually a book called Nomadland that... Uh, uh, I don't know the name of the author off the top of my head, but it, it, it was a book that was published um, that was true stories about people who live this lifestyle. Um, and uh, so Francis McDormand read it and thought it was interesting and wondered if the style of filmmaking that that, that sort of um, very lyrical but low budget and low impact uh, approach that Josh Richards and Chloe Zhao were doing on their films c- could work for Nomadland. Right, right. And I'm going to set up what we talked about and actually play that in the podcast, the, the Nomadland. So we took your production class to Magnuson Park. Mm-hmm. It was the first time in uh, Dan and I went a week before we shot and uh, did some scouting and, and the sunrise where it was, I think we started like five, five something. Um, and it was just so beautiful. And you get this just magical window of lighting. That's surreal where the sky is just absolutely magnificent. And it was like you, cotton candy just draped over everything. Just the, the whole, uh, landscape and the people inside of it were just like a painting you, you said i think when we're out there yeah. the, the landscape and everything and and so you were really coaching your students to be prepared and to absolutely plan you know meticulously for this timing because there was like this beautiful uh window of opportunity for i think we'd end up like 11 to 18 minutes you know where the sun would rise and we we capture this beautiful but um i i really loved the process in seeing you um really so mechanical and technical um at, at translating what we conceptualized for an, a nomad land inspired story and script and just uh, how you effectively you know captured the shots and everything it was it was really um, you know, fascinating and interesting to watch. But can you just talk a little bit uh, and share the story about how you added in the narration and yeah. where that dialogue came from? Because that sewed up the whole thing and made it beautiful. And, and I think that's what really connected. Yeah, I mean, at the end. Th- this is, I, yeah, I think this is for me the whole thing. Uh, also, I, you know, it's not that Nomad, I, I mean, I, I wanted Nomad Land to really be the inspiration for this on a visual layer, but also kind of how how I think the story was made. I mean, obviously, I yeah. wasn't there. I didn't. I wasn't part of the production. But I've, I've, I've watched all, the, all the, you know, YouTube interviews with Josh Richards, and I, I have a sense of what they did. And, they, and I think one of the things that was so cool about it was, is they had a script, but they also had the ability to, um, to improvise inside that space and to just, you know, to take people who are non-actors. Uh, virtually everyone in that film is, is, is are real people who they, they met who are. You know, on the road, and those people have real things to say, and they gave them an opportunity to say them. Um, of course, it was edited. You know, it was edited into something you know usable. But at the same time, um, it wasn't scripted per se. Th- that part w- was impossible because if you give, if you if you ask someone who is a non-professional actor to deliver a line, they won't do it. Like they, they can't do it, right? They you can only get them to say something that's true for them. You know. It, it w- while you're in that moment, right, and so that's what they did, right, and so for me, um, that uh, I guess you know that that element that crept into that particular project was, you know, we we you and I were talking beforehand about what we were going to do, and and I you know I I really I just wanted to 
to shoot something in that beautiful light. It could be anything, <laughs> you know. I was just like, let's just get people out there. But but of course, you have to give them a reason to be there, right? So I don't know how we we somehow hit on the idea that it should be uh, someone who's saying goodbye to a loved one, right? Uh, and we had thought of that in advance, and so um, we you know got them. We we got her there with a uh, some ashes or some some you know just yeah. whatever it was, and and um. And and just and sort of let let that you know you were directing that and let that play out on the on the waterfront there, saying goodbye you know to a loved one. By the way, but the reason that I ended up cutting it a little differently was because literally the morning of of our shoot, you know, we got up at three thirty in the morning. We were out there before first light, filming, and then um, and then you know we were wrapped by like probably seven thirty or something. Right. We were we were done, you know, so. When I was done that day, uh, I went over to Kirkland, where my father-in-law was dying of cancer, uh, and he ended up passing away at about noon that day. And so, um, you know, I went from shooting a scene that was about saying goodbye to, to someone to literally saying goodbye to someone, and um, it made, of course, quite an impact on me. Uh, it's the first, I guess it's the, maybe the closest person I've, I've been to who's died in my life. My parents are still alive, and... Uh, you know, and, and so it was kind of a big deal. And um, my wife um, found this poem uh, about about you know that that sort of somehow summed up everything on that day. And um, so as she read the poem, I just it, like I mean, I I just heard that poem, and I just and I just knew immediately that it had to be the dialogue that the, the sort of the audio track for this thing that we had just shot and Absolutely. that it was perfect yeah it really was it was beautiful and it just uh really resonated with uh, the folks i shared it with and again i got so much feedback from that of that just being like that touched me and it, and it was really a real element of you adding that in so i appreciated when you shared that with me on that day i thought that was pretty special how it literally tied into to what we were doing but i thought it, it turned out as well so it, it was one of those things too that um you know when i when i heard uh, my wife of course when my wife when, when my wife read the poem you know everybody started crying and it was a real it was a moving thing but my wife's not a not a professional voice talent and you know she if i had just recorded her voice doing that it probably wouldn't have worked in the same way for a general audience so i wanted to find someone who could read it um with with, with the right um delivery you know and that that was going to be it i needed to find someone professional to do that so i literally uh went to um like voices.com i think it is the place and i and, and voices.com you can you can put your script you could put your script out and have like you, you can tell that you can say what kind of person do you want male female what age are they you know and and so i i wrote up a little thing and said i want somebody with a voice that sounds lived in you know that like a lived in experience uh, an older person, not you know, maybe uh, indeterminate older yeah. age, yeah. Uh, and you know, maybe have smoked their whole life. I don't know, just <laughs> so, something gravel. You know, just uh, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, but I didn't want to be too specific because I wanted to get lots of, uh, uh, of auditions. When I die. Give what's left of me away to children and old men that wait to die. And if you need to cry, 
Cry for your brother. Walking the street beside you. And when you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give to me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me and the people I've known or loved. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live on in your eyes and not on your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands, by letting bodies touch bodies, and by letting go of children that need to be free. Love doesn't die. People do. So, when all that's left of me is love, give me away. said lived experience like i wanted to hear somebody that has lived yeah. some life yes that, that. i want to hear the lived experience in their life yeah that okay. was the, the the thing i put in there and the reality is is I, I got 27 auditions within i think you know 48 hours like pretty quickly 27 people auditioned uh and as i as i listened to them all I, you only have to listen to the first sentence or two to yeah. know that it's not very good and then some more some more better but then there was this one guy uh, from South Carolina. He, was, he had sort of a southern accent, but he had a lived-in voice. And, it, yeah. and really, it was the only, uh, of all those 27 people, it, it's, it's what makes me such a fan of casting. I'm, I'm such a fan of casting. I mean, if I'd had 40 people, maybe there would have been someone better. I don't know. But Hard to say. But, that but, was pretty but, on the money. But 27 people, that, that guy nailed it. You know, yeah. if, I, if I'd only had 13 people, I, then one of them would have been the best, right? <laughs> so you always, I think you have to... I think it's good to cast a wide net. Uh, but anyway, the guy nailed it. And I just, when I heard it, I was like, oh, that, that's my guy. I didn't even, at that point, I was like, you know, I, I did the courtesy of listening to the rest, but I kind of <laughs> knew that I had, had the guy. A little bit like Milford Brimley kind of remind me of, but but definitely uh, will uh, play that to end because it's, it's really a beautiful piece. Well, um, I want to thank you so much, Dan. Uh, we're here live from the Seattle Film Institute, October 15th. We're on about our fifth episode uh, podcast series doing and have Dan McComb so want to thank him for being with us today Ty Presto is here our, as our producer for the first time and has totally changed the game for us um, and made this a real legitimate podcast series so I want to thank him and give him a shout out Dan if you could close with just really uh, giving yourself a plug as far as where you would like people to check out your work, whether your website or Vimeo or, or what's, because I mean, it's just, it's really great. A great body of work that you should you know, be yeah, proud of. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I have a Vimeo page and it's just Dan McComb or Vimeo slash Dan McComb, I think is the URL. I also have um, danmacomb.com is a blog that I don't really maintain much anymore. Sorry, sorry people that, uh, <laughs> I, I, I was very active in blogging for, for a few years as I was, learning the stuff you know and and but once i've 
once I kind of got through the excitement of learning it, I also kind of was less interested in blogging about it, I think, on my own personal blog. But I am very interested in sharing the stuff in my classes. So, so, uh, so I do look forward to uh, meeting uh, students in, in my class and sharing what I know. And, and ultimately, you know, I think my, the thing I want to leave everybody with uh, in my classes and, and anybody who's listening today is that none of this is rocket science. N- none of filmmaking is rocket science. Every job in filmmaking, you should, you should know how to do. That's, you know, you mentioned editing. Um, and, you know, uh, the tools are so accessible now. Everyone should edit. Everyone should edit. You, and, you, and, you, and despite what they say, um, you should edit your own stuff. They, yeah. they say never edit your own stuff. I say bullshit. Just edit your own <laughs> stuff. You know, you'll, you'll, be a, you'll be a much better whatever you want to be, better director. You'll be a better DP uh, if, you, if you cut your own stuff and realize what goes into that. And there's no reason not to. Yeah. So, I, so I just, I think, you know, the bar is low to entry and, and you know, it's up to you to just jump in and, and take the tools and do something with them. That's you will learn and you will get better. That's really, really sound advice. And I highly recommend take Dan's editing class, take his production classes, uh, learn from him because he is one of the great ones here. So definitely appreciate you, Dan. Thanks again for being with us today. Thanks again, Ty, for being our producer.